Since we're in the phase of integration, integrating our experiences here and our insights here, as we move back into our daily life, our worldly life, I thought that I would talk a little bit about wise action and how we can apply our insights in this regard. Wise action is one of the factors on the Eightfold Noble Path, the Eightfold Noble Path being the path that uh, was laid down by the Buddha as uh, the path that we follow in this tradition. It's uh, the fourth uh, noble truth of the Four Noble Truths. And wise action means a way of being in the world that is not harming, that is compassionate and wise, that we're actually able to be and to act and live in a way that displays, that expresses the deepest understanding of our heart and mind, this wisdom and compassion. So one of the things that I've been emphasizing in this retreat to support that reflection for us is looking at our relationship to our thinking mind. And I want to weave this in because there's been such a strong emphasis for us on our relationship to our thoughts and disentangling from our thoughts. And there's a reason for this. There's a very, very important reason for this. And that's what I want to really look at tonight and, and go into tonight. We look at our thoughts and we look at our mind in order to train our mind. And we train our mind so that we're not controlled by our mind. The ordinary person is run by their thinking mind, by their conceptual mind, by that fixed conceptual view that I spoke about last night. And it's a narrow view. It's a view that does not see or know what's called the wide view or the big view, the bigger picture. And so when we're caught up in that thinking mind, we're in a very narrow life, a very narrow, we have a very narrow perspective. And our actions come out of that view, out of that uh, perspective that we have about our life. And so when we train the mind, we're not being controlled by the mind, meaning we're not being led around by the mind. And when we're not controlled by the mind, that means that we have access to our deeper qualities, the qualities of our heart, the qualities of our being that we've been exploring and looking into, these qualities of love and compassion and joy, and equanimity, uh, truthfulness, generosity, just to name a few. These qualities arise from our being when we come into contact with our natural state, uh, the state of, of who we are that is not defined by our thinking mind. And so we're trying to see when we pay attention to our thoughts and to our mind, if we can, when we disengage, is what's, what's there? 
do we need that? Do we need to be led by this conceptual view of reality? Is there something else that can open up for us and move us into action that is not defined in this narrow way? The Buddha has this, I love this one uh, quote of the Buddha when I was reading the text, one of the ones that jumped out at me was when the Buddha said, I am the master of my mind. I think the thoughts I want to think, and I don't think the thoughts I don't want to think. I am the master of my mind. And there's something very potent in that. (laughs) I am the master of my mind. And even when I say it, I can feel the potency of that. That the awareness, the discriminating awareness is so strong that I can track what thoughts are moving through my mind. And if I'm able to be the master of my mind, then when my thoughts are going down a road, down a path, down a destination that is going to lead me into more pain and suffering, I can see that, I can know that, I can feel it, I guess I know I'm not going to go down that road. But if my mind is opening and leading me down a road that's leading me to more love and to more connection and to more harmony and to more unity and to more clarity, I want to go down that road. That's the one I want. And so in this moment of awareness, when I can pay attention and see, oh yeah, my, my mind's taking me this way or my mind's, I, can, I have a choice. I have a choice in that moment, which way I want to go. And this is really one of the pith teachings of the Buddha. You know, we, can, we think that when we come to meditation, that the, that the point is, and everybody really gets caught in this, I did and everyone else does, that somehow we're supposed to be so quiet and clear that we don't have any thoughts. You know, and that so, somehow we're supposed to be able to stop our thoughts. And it's not about stopping our thoughts. You know, we're just trying to understand our minds, to see our minds clearly, see what's actually going on, begin to discriminate what's actually going on so we know what to follow. We know what choices to make. We know how to orient our action. Bless you. (laughs) Because action follows the thought. There's thought, there's action, and then there's the result. Thought, action, result. That sequence. So we want to know what kinds of thoughts arise in the mind so that we know where we're heading and possibly what kind of result we may expect. I want to read this um, passage from Robert Thurman, who uh, is a uh, Buddhist scholar, a Tibetan uh, Buddhist scholar. He's a a Western professor uh, on the East Coast. And it just, I like this uh, piece from one of his talks because it really does uh, point to how we can get caught thinking that somehow we're supposed to stop our thoughts. So he said, he says, so this is one of my favorite things to propose to people who meditate. Westerners, of all, uh, Westerners are all taught from a very early age a certain form of intensive mental patterning, but not Asians. 
I love to ask Tibetans to add up in their heads 9,473 and 6,722. A Tibetan cannot do that. They absolutely will not be able to do that. The most intelligent and great Lama, whatever, they cannot do it. They go, huh? <laughs> Say it again. They won't do it. But we can do it easily, almost any of us, because we can make a picture in our mind of it, visualize the numbers, put a line under them, and go zip zop, zip zop, carry one, two, three, four. We can visualize such a thing easily. We are taught since childhood to do such things in our head. In the normal cycling of thought, we have lots of very tight little circuits that pattern our thinking. A lot of energy is tied up in that. So when we come to meditate and begin to slow the thinking pattern down or even abandon the thoughts and see them float away, this can tend to be a powerful experience for us. To suddenly be suspended in space-time for a few moments of our life without thinking about what we are doing, suddenly there is so much more energy released by getting out of that tight little circuit we can feel calm or like we're floating. We might even feel like we've attained something. But in Buddhist nations, for whom such meditative disciplines have been so much part of their civilization and culture for so long, such as Tibetans, the norm is not to think much. So therefore, they're already very relaxed. They have a very relaxed culture, a very friendly culture. Don't think about a lot of things. So on the contrary, their educational system has all sorts of ways of battering them to get them to think. Because there can be an excess of no thinking, believe it or not. But thinking isn't it either. Even if you've learned that the secret way and the high and great seal of perfection is like a clarified, luminous, and magnificent, marvelous state of non-thought, that's too simple. It's much more than non-thought. It's much more than non-thought. And that's what we've been exploring. We don't want to get caught in the duality and the polarity of either, either being attached to our thoughts or trying to get rid of our thoughts and go into some kind of a clear, empty space. And then we're just caught between the two, and then we get very upset or disappointed when our mind is busy. And it's not, a, we need, so the point is, is the training, is the training. And the training is to cultivate the awareness enough so that we can actually know what we're thinking, to know what thoughts to follow and what thoughts not to follow, not to just eject or delete all thought, which really can only happen in very, very, very deep states of concentration, which takes a while to develop in retreat. And then when you come out of retreat, all the thinking comes back anyhow. So, but yet there is a way when the mind gets very concentrated, there's, that's a way we sharpen that tool of clarity so that when the thinking comes back, we have more awareness to be able to discriminate the thought and know which thoughts to follow and know which thoughts not to follow. <laughs> and so it really is, I was, I was really quite um, pleased when I was reading the, one of the uh, volumes of texts of the Buddha to find out that this is really what the Buddha is pointing to. It's about wise action and wise 
wise thought, wise intention, wise uh, 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 choices. So that not only are we individually coming out of pain and suffering in our own lives, but we are also not continuing to reinforce pain and suffering for other people's lives and in the world. So we're really interested in these forces, the forces that run through the mind stream, the forces of greed, the forces of hatred, the forces of confusion, these three what's called taints of the mind or or these uh, destructive forces in the mind, the greed, the, the aversion or the hatred and the confusion. And so when we sit down and we meditate, we're actually looking at the way these particular forces are moving through the mind to see if we can not keep reinforcing those patterns by following them and getting caught in them and acting out of them and, and, and uh, uh, having them continue to, to operate in our lives in the same way. So when we begin to disengage from those forces, those thoughts of greed and aversion and uh, the way the mind can get very confused and kind of uh, spacey and uh, frozen, different ways that the mind gets confused, we can begin to recognize that and then use our tools and our resources to support us so that we don't get so caught and identified and lost in that. This is from um, a Mahayana text. It goes like this. The mind whirls around like a swung firebrand. Mind vacillates like a wave. Mind burns like a forest fire. Mind Mind swells like a mighty flood. If one considers this well, one will live with mindfulness well directed on the mind. One will not succumb to the mind's mastery, but will exercise mastery over the mind. If the mind is mastered, all things are mastered. So we're talking about a kind of mastery. You know, when we we meet somebody who is a great teacher or great sage, they're a master. We call them master because they have mastered, they have disciplined, they have trained these forces, these habitual uh, tendencies of the mind that so easily wash over us. Mind swells like a mighty flood. And if the mind is swelling like a mighty, mighty flood, I am swelling like a mighty flood. (laughs) If my mind is burning like a forest fire, I am burning like a forest fire. (laughs) And so we're, we're looking at being directed of ways to be able to come into some understanding and overcome these forces of mind. So on the Eightfold Path, The first factor of the Eightfold Path is wise view or wise understanding so that we begin to uh, understand what is the correct view or the wise view, the way things are really in, in this existence. 
And the second factor on the Eightfold Path is what's called a wise intention or wise thought. And it's in this factor where this all opens up, because once we have kind of a clear view, that, in, that affects, that impacts our thought and our intention. When we have clarity, when we have a certain wisdom and compassion and truthfulness that's running through the, the thought, that, is, that affects our view. That affects what we perceive. That affects what we experience. When we have greed and hatred and confusion running through the mind stream, that's going to affect our thought, our intentions, our actions, and the results of our actions. When we talk about wise intention and wise thought, it's really the same. We can sometimes the intention can just arise through a thought, or sometimes that intention can, we can just feel the impulse, like a bodily impulse to act. And when I think of that, when I think of a bodily impulse, I usually think of when I want to go get some ice cream or something. You know, that's that's when I can feel that impulse, you know, especially if I keep a pint of ice cream in my freezer. <laughs> You know, and I know it's there, especially uh, Ben and Jerry's (laughs) Cherry Garcia. (laughs) I know it's there, and I can just feel this kind of bodily impulse to kind of go to the refrigerator, go to the freezer, and get that ice cream. And that's that's the intention. That's what we're talking about, is that kind of the intention that moves us into action. And that brings about a certain result. That's a very benign example. (laughs) But in every moment, there's that intention. There's that impulse to move into some kind of action. Right now, the intention for me is I have some intention to communicate some aspect of the Dharma to you to hope that maybe it will make some difference in your your lives. That, That impulse or that intention which is moving me into action, and hopefully there'll be a wholesome result. And every moment this is operating, this is moving. So wherever we direct our intentions is what gives shape to our reality. It actually is what gives shape to our reality. So if you look at your life, you look at your present life, Everything that's happening for you now is, imp- is affected by all the intentions that have been set in motion beforehand. So one of the examples is you're here on this retreat right now. How did you get here? You had to put a lot of intentions in motion to actually get yourselves here. A lot of intentions and actions to get this, all these conditions together to create the result of you being here on this retreat. And in this case, those intentions were imbued with many wholesome qualities. This, this, this desire for some understanding, some uh, uh, opening, maybe, you know, everyone here, when we, when we started the retreat, you all kind of reflected on your intentions, your motivations for being here. You know, whether it was to open your heart, to get some clarity, to uh, have some time in the silence, to um, come into a new relationship with yourself. These are very wholesome intentions. 
that were set in motion, the action, and then the result, it's likely that you will have a very positive result because of the intention that was set in motion. This is from uh, one of the uh, Buddhist uh, cla uh, classic texts called the Dhammapada. This is a, a, a translation from Gil Fronsdale, who's one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock. This is a very, very pop popular um, quote of the Buddha that is uh, quoted quite often. All experience is preceded by the mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. This is so key in the Buddha's teachings to understand what's moving through the mind stream because that's what's going to affect not only the action, whether speech or bodily action, and then the result, the consequences of what occurs. This is called the law of karma. The law of karma, which is sometimes thought to be very complicated, can also be very simplified when you just think about it as cause and effect. What are you setting in motion? What condition is arising now? And if you're aware of that, that's going to have some effect. There's a cause and there's effect. There's a cause and an effect. That's karma. And the Buddha calls karma the light of the world. The light of the world because it illuminates the way things are. When we really see clearly how things come into being, how we come into being, how our lives come into being. This is, this is illuminated. This is the light, because then we can be free. We're not bound. We're not victimized by this. We actually can influence our transforma transformation, our liberation. Karma is simply the understanding that our actions bring results. And that we, with awareness, we actually have a choice of what results we're bringing in. As much as possible, considering the other things we've talked about, where there needs to be intention and then letting go. Intention and letting go. Because there are many, 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 many factors involved in every moment of experience. It's not just my intention that I'm projecting. If it were only my projection, then I would get everything I wanted. Wouldn't I? If I could, if it was just like, oh, I'm going to intend for that and I'm going to act this way and then I'll get it. Right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? But the fact is that there are hundreds of thousands of other factors <laughs> in every moment of experience that are impacting what, what the result will be. So, so and yet we, we, can, we can take responsibility for our part. And, and as much as possible, because if we just say, oh, it's too much, forget it, it's, you know, I don't have any impact, I, don't, I can't make any difference in any way, well, we've just taken our part out of the whole momentum. And that's each one of us are very powerful in our own 
clarity and our wisdom and our compassion and what we're bringing to the world. With mindful attention, we can see that each intention in the mind is like a seed of tremendous potential. And an example of that, when, I'm, when I teach in Gaia House in, in England, uh, one of the retreat, sister retreat centers there, they have these three huge oak trees in the front, front garden. I mean, the biggest oak trees I've ever seen. I mean, they're, the trunk is about this wide around. Just fabulous trees. But they have these little acorns on them. And the example is that the, the smallest acorn, the tiniest little acorn, contains the potential of that great oak tree. Every little acorn has that force in it to become a great oak tree. Even the teeniest little seed In the same way, each of our intentions and our willed actions contains the seed of karmic results, of what we're setting in motion. Every little intention, every little action has, what is it imbued with? And this is what I mean when I say karmic results. Is it imbued with greed and anger and hatred and confusion? Or is that imbued with love? and compassion, generosity, and wisdom. That's what's going to generate. That's what's going to become great. We can imagine a thread that weaves through each of our intentions and actions and results. And if that thread is made up of greed and hatred and confusion, what kind of result am I going to get? So just take a moment. I'd like you to think of a time. It could be something that happened recently or maybe in the recent past where you've been been involved in some kind of action where your mind has not been so clear. (laughs) That your mind (laughs) has been filled with either some greed or some anger, aversion, or some confusion. And that has been directed in some kind of action, movement, towards some result, something that you've wanted, hoping to get. You know, whether it's a particular kind of relationship with somebody or some kind of outcome with some kind of event that you're engaged in or your meditation experience. (laughs) That wanting where there's some kind of intention and then action towards a result. So just consider for a moment and think about what kind of result you got. See if you could get a sense for that, what comes through when you're acting in a particular way. Because generally, what we get back is still imbued with some kind of contraction, some kind of tension, some kind of dissatisfaction. 
An, an example could be that if I'm, if I'm treating somebody with disrespect, unkindly, what am I going to get back? I'm going to get some fear or some kind of way that they'll feel closed or contracted towards me. As opposed to if I'm being loving or caring or kind to somebody, what's likely to come back? It's, it's circular like this. So in the same way, if the thread that is going through the intention and the action and the result is made with mindfulness and wisdom, loving kindness, generosity, non-attachment, what kind of result is likely to come? And again, it's not going to be absolutely assured, because nothing is assured. We're talking about probability. We're increasing our probability here. So take a moment now and just reflect on a time that you were engaged in some action where your mind was filled with loving kindness or compassion, non-attachment, whether towards yourself or another person. What kind of result did you get? And consider the result also as your own experience, the experience that you have in your heart, in your being. That's part of the result. This is so important to know our mind and our heart because this is really the fuel for our transformation. This is the key to our transformation. And that the more that I'm acting out of these wholesome intentions, I am actually strengthening these qualities of my heart. I'm strengthening these qualities of my mind, these wholesome, loving, skillful qualities of being. They become stronger and fuller and more of my being, who I am. There's a wonderful quote from the Buddha that says, uh, that when he said, um, whatever one thinks or ponders on, this will become the inclination of mind. Whatever one thinks or ponders on, this becomes the inclination of one's mind. This is strengthening. You know, now we have all this new brain, uh, brain science, and we're all just kind of catching up with that a little bit. But this is what they're discovering, right? This is what they're discovering in brain science, that we're strengthening different pathways so that we have grooves in the mind. So these habits, these tendencies that we've, that we've repeated over time, they actually create grooves in the mind. So it's easier, the neurons slip into those grooves and we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And so when we come to meditation, we're actually creating new pathways. We're creating new pathways in the mind that 
are leading us to a different part of the brain where we're actually more attuned and more connected and we can access our love and our, our compassion and we're, we're, we become different beings. And we, they actually can detect that the brain changes. There's actual real significant change in the brain because we're using a different part of the brain. I mean, this is what science is really uh, showing, showing us now. You know, what, what's been happening in the meditative disciplines for hundreds, uh, so for thousands of years, but now the science is catching up with it and saying, yeah, that's what's going on. We're, we're, we're building new pathways. So we're inclining the mind. The Buddha talks, we incline the mind in a different way. We incline the mind to love. We incline the mind to harmony, to unity to clarity, we incline the mind, and then the mind changes, we change, we transform. The mind isn't fixed, the mind isn't static, it's pliable, it's malleable, it's workable like clay, it's not, not hard. We are malleable. And sometimes I think there's one person here who just says, I'm, I'm, I'm the old man here, you know, I'm the old yogi here. You know, sometimes we say that we kind of feel like we're, we're kind of uh, like you can't teach a, a, a dog, an old dog new tricks, you know. It's like, a, well, I may as well give up now, you know. <laughs> but it's not like that. There's always the possibility for this change, for this transformation. We can impact, we can affect. When we understand the laws of karma and the Four Noble Truths and what actually brings this change. One of my colleagues and teachers, Stephen Batchelor, he talks about this as um, uh, that we are, that the path and the practices are refashioning ourselves in accord with the Dharma. We actually refashion ourselves. I like that in accord with the Dharma, with the laws of the Dharma. And Sokni Rinpoche, one of my other Lama, Lama teachers says, and the qualities of the heart are the afterglow. The qualities of the heart are the afterglow. Wise intention follows wise view on the Eightfold Path because when we see clearly what actually brings happiness and what brings suffering, then we are inspired to establish a clear vision and a clear path for ourselves. And we want to make choices for that vision in our life. We get hold of the inspiration, of the Dharma inspiration. A friend of mine calls it the Dharma hook. We get hooked by the Dharma. It takes us in a different direction. We can't go back in the old ways. We can't go back to the old habits because we see, yeah, it just takes me back into the pain and the suffering of my life. So we're inspired to move in a new way, in a new direction. So for me in my practice, one of the um, questions that I ask myself to help me discriminate this is I, and I'm, and I'm, I'm asking myself this a few different times in the day, depending on what, what's happening in my mind and where my mind may get caught. I simply ask the question, is this thought helpful 
or not? Is this a helpful thought or is it not a helpful thought? Is this a useful thought or is this not a useful thought? And I can just see as soon as I ask the question, there's some discrimination and then I either drop it or I follow it. And it's that simple. As there's more and more training, as there's more and more discriminating with the, the discrimination with the mind, is this helpful or is this not helpful? And one of the other signs of that is sometimes it's not so clear with the thinking or with the thought, there might be a feeling. And I, you can feel yourself starting to get into kind of a, a, a contracted state or a, or a confused state and a lack of clarity. And then it can be a signal. No, something's going on here. There's something, there's some way I'm thinking or uh, some belief here or something. And it's possible just to do a little bit more inquiry around that, find out what's going on, what's happening here. And even if I can't get to the thought, if I'm with a feeling, I can just kind of say, well, is this helpful? Should I follow this? Should I go with this? Because maybe there's something here that I need to understand. And maybe there's something that I need to inquire into. But I can say, nope, this is not useful. This is not helpful. I'm just going down a path. It's just things old. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, painful. And I don't want to go down there. And so in this way, we can start to influence more of what occurs through the day. And I want to bring this one particular example where this is, seems really important, particularly on our path. And I, and I see that in, for us as we mature in our practice, that one of the things that becomes so important is the area of self-care is really taking care of ourselves. And you know, it can seem like that's kind of preliminary <laughs> or something for us in the beginning of our path. But what I feel is that as we mature on the path and become more sensitive to what's happening in our mind and our body, this becomes even more imperative of how we're actually caring for ourselves. Because this care is an act of love. This care is an act of generosity. And one of the things we find is that when we're very caught in our habits, we may not be taking very good care of ourselves. We may be engaged in habits that are actually creating more uh, pain for ourselves or more uh, unhealth. Uh, uh, thing, doing things for ourselves that aren't very good for ourselves. But as we open up and we see what we're doing and how we're acting and what we're, uh, how these habits are impacting us, we make choices. We take action to take better care. And however that looks, and I know there's different people in this room that this applies to in different ways, in ways that we get caught up in our lives. And we're not making very good choices for ourselves. And therefore, those choices aren't very good for the people around us. Sometimes this question of self-care, making, taking care of ourselves in this way, can seem selfish. Like, well, I'm putting myself before somebody else, and so many people need help and need care, so I don't really have time to care for myself, to eat well, or exercise, or meditate, or take time in the nature, or take time for inquiry, writing, creative work, or dance, or yoga, or whatever, tai, uh, qigong, whatever it is. 
with, I don't have time. I have too many responsibilities. I have too many commitments. But then as we become more sensitive, we actually start to feel the impact of those choices. We can't do it anymore. We see that those choices not only create pain for us, but they do for the people around us. And many people, depending on the work you have, the livelihood you're engaged in, you can act, we can actually burn out. Uh, that happened to me a couple of years ago because I was not making such good choices for myself around my work, which is very demanding in terms of uh, teaching and meeting with people and all the work that's engaged in that. I just got into a kind of a, a, a cycle where I, I couldn't get out of all the work and all the busyness. And I knew that something was going to have to change. And I could see that in a few months, I was going, things were going to, I was going to be able to stop for a while. But it just seemed, OK, just a little further away, a couple months, a couple more months. And then uh, as things do, as conditions uh, unexpectedly intervene, I came down with a very, very severe case of pneumonia. Just before those two months, I almost made it. <laughs> and I landed in the hospital, and I was there for a, a, a week. After two weeks of being on my sister's sofa, uh, almost dying, before I actually, I was in Southern California, I couldn't even get up to my, my health, my HMO, my health uh, organization in Northern California and finding out that Southern California is a whole different uh, health system than Northern California. And I got all tangled up in the, all the, uh, <laughs> the politics of that and meantime, almost dying. And then wound up finally back, had to fly back to San Francisco, being very, very ill, very sick, on my own. Finally, my doc got to doctor's appointment the next morning. He took one look at me, and he put me right in the hospital. And I uh, was there for a week, really not knowing, I mean, very, uh, very, very much on the edge. And uh, took a, took a, I had to just cancel everything, obviously. I couldn't do anything. So my sabbatical started a little bit earlier than I had intended. But it was a real wake-up call. It was a real wake-up call. We think that we have so much capacity. And we, because things are so speeded up now in our culture and things are there's so much, we, we can override these signals. We can override the messages. We're not, we're, we don't listen so well. So, so I think that as, as we mature, as we, as we actually open and become more sensitive, this is so key for us, is how we take care. And it is not selfish. So easily we can think this is a selfish endeavor to put ourselves first. And that's just, it's just wrong view. It's confusion in the mind. There's another, we can translate that selfish view into a view which I like much better, which is called um, enlightened self-interest. So I would encourage you, I'm really encouraging you to practice enlightened self-interest. Because this is really what's going to support us and allow us to be all that we can be and, and make choices not only for ourselves, but ways of being in the world that really make a difference. 
Each one of us has so much capacity, so much potential. I'm reminded often that we are only using 5% of our entire brain capacity at this point in our evolution. 5% as human species. Doesn't it make you very curious about the other 95% of our brain? <laughs> and what's really possible for us? So I really feel that this element of self-care is really key. And self-care, of course, has to do with the practices, the healing practices, the practices that Tija has been teaching, the meditative practices, taking time. Someone was talking today about the amazing beauty that's opened up for her on this retreat, taking the time to look at the trees and the horses and talked about a butterfly that landed somewhere where she was and taking time to just look at that butterfly. And as she was speaking about it, she just started crying because it was just so immense. The beauty was so immense. The preciousness was so immense. So the question is, how do we continue that? How do we, how do we make time for that? How do we create conditions in our life that are going to support this? Because this is where the deep healing happens. And the healing has to do with our freedom, with our liberation, with awakening these qualities of the heart, of our mind. And this is what's going to make a difference in this world. Each one of us, each one of us has this potential to not only transform ourselves, but to bring about the transformation on this planet. And so what we're practicing, what we're exploring, what we're discovering is not only for ourselves, but as we say each evening, you know, may the merit, may the benefit of our efforts, of our work here together over these days, over these hours, be not only for our own awakening and our own liberation, but go out to all beings everywhere so that all beings can come out of their pain and their suffering and be free and awaken to their own potential for Buddhahood. So I'll stop there. and Let's just sit for a few moments. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, 
and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.